Welcome in. Today I'd like to offer some reflections on being a Dharma person versus having a Dharma practice. These reflections are not intended to be points of judgment towards someone else's practice or our own practice for that matter. They're more a way to start to look at the core elements of Buddha Dharma in our practice, uh, if we wish to practice that kind of a path, and to really see what may be the difference between having a practice versus when that practice is starting to coalesce in our being, when it's starting to transform us. For those of you newer to the Buddhist path and or newer to meditation, this could also be a way to um, take in some new information or a different way to look at um, some of these reflections or, or Buddhist material in order to grow um, an intention or a purpose for why we're meditating. In general, I'm offering these reflections for those of us who have been practicing for a while to take some stock of our practice in a compassionate way, uh, not from a place of judgment and or not enoughness. So I just want to point that out before we go into the content. I'd also like to point out that having a Dharma practice is just fine. There's actually no way to become a Dharma person without having a Dharma practice. So we all start with a Dharma practice. You know, most of us are are also in some in-between where we have a practice, we're seeing some changes and transformation. We're starting to um, understand how to be a Dharma person, or that's just happening naturally as a result of our practice. But we also have a practice. We have something we're committed to. And without that, there's there's no way to transform. So I just want to point that out uh, as well. So first off, what does being a Dharma person actually mean? There's many takes on this. Um, there's many approaches to discuss this. Uh, you could probably find some some really awesome material out there from from lineage masters in the Tibetan traditions I practice, as well as other Buddhist lineages, and I'm sure other Dharma paths as well, on on what it means uh, to embody something. But when I was reflecting on this, I ended up coming back to this core quote from the Buddha that really sums it up. And this quote goes like this: "Commit not a single unwholesome action." Cultivate a wealth of virtue. To completely tame this mind of ours, this is the teaching of the Buddhas. And so you can find this quote uh, throughout traditional Buddhism, especially in Himalayan Buddhism or Tibetan Buddhism. You see this taught often. Um, sometimes people even inscribe it in, in rock or stone um, or paint it on, on a wall of a, of a temple. And this is because this is one of the most famous quotes from the Buddha, and it really sums up the entire path of the Dharma. Um, someone could actually probably do a, you know, multi-week, if not multi-month teaching on this, this one quote, if, if they're very skilled in, in Buddhist teaching. So it's really deep. There's a lot that is implied here, right? So... Let's unpack it a little bit so we can see um, how Dharma is seeping into our own life, um, how this quote applies to our own practice of becoming a Dharma person. So I'd like to take a fruitional approach to this quote from the Buddha and start at the end of the quote rather than the beginning. And so the end of the quote um, says this is the teaching of the Buddhas. Now, just a little side note to... Um, 
my audience here, which is which I'm guessing is is the majority Western. Sometimes when we read quotes like this, we can take it dogmatically. So we can hear this, you know, the end of the quote is, this is the teaching of the Buddha, sort of like it's a command or, you know, uh, like, like you know, it's God speaking down on us, telling us how we're, we're bad or, or wrong. Um, that's not the intention in this quote at all. So usually, as probably some of you who, you know, regularly check out my, my content, um, usually I recommend to, to look at these these quotes differently to look at them with more curiosity or from the perspective of a question rather than someone telling us something or ordering us to do something. I don't know about for you, but for me, as someone who's grown up in the West, in the United States, um, yeah, I, I have a sensitivity to this. So I have to be especially careful when I read things like this. Uh, so we have this end. This is the teaching of the Buddhas, sort of like it's this absolute thing. So for me, because of this sensitivity, um, I think it's important to pull apart the meaning behind the words in quotes like this. And so starting with the word Buddhas, um, let's unpack that a little bit. So the Sanskrit word Buddha means an awakened mind a mind that no longer experiences the falsities of a dualistic reality, of a subject-object experience. In other words, who doesn't experience projection from the mind anymore, and therefore has ceased all uh, cultivation of the causes of suffering. But an awakened mind or a Buddha has not just eliminated the cause of suffering, they also have the ability or efficacy to fully benefit others. And so this is a little bit of a fuller idea of what a Buddha is. And of course, you know, it's still a pretty vague term for most of us because we don't have that experience. So we don't know what that means. Uh, but it's important to at least understand it a little bit so we have an idea of what we're moving towards. And in this, you know, in, in taking this quote in a more fruitional way, we're looking at, well, what does it ultimately mean to be a Dharma person? It means to be a Buddha, it means to be free, it means to be awake with the complete efficacy and ability to fully benefit others and help to wake them up out of their um, dreamlike appearances that are causing suffering, right? So anyways, I, I think, you know, I like that approach because for me, that's quite inspiring. That makes me want to become a Dharma person, right? As opposed to, you know, I guess we could look at this quote in a more dogmatic way and feel like it's trying to create some rules or rigidity around us. And I don't see that at all. I see it as pointing me to freedom. And that's really embedded in, in the end of the, the quote here. So next we have this verse to completely tame this mind of ours. And so what is an awakened being? It's someone who completely tamed their mind. And what does ultimately taming the mind mean? It means that through our learning, reflection, and meditation, we've been able to cut through the delusion of dualistic clinging. We've been able to cut through the delusion of, you know, the self-enclosure, that it's all about me, that the world revolves around me. And we come into not only a more uh, clear and an accurate perception of reality, but also a more open, compassionate, and loving expression that can help others, that has the freedom and ability uh, to focus on others more as opposed to oneself. And to do that from a place of seeing reality, which has so much skill and wisdom embedded in it. So this is one way to talk about taming the mind. Of course, that's related to the end of the quote, a more fruitional idea of taming the mind. 
But then there's all kinds of stages along the path where we're taming our mind, we're working with our destructive emotions, trying to be mindful of them, trying to not engage in um, actions of body, speech, and mind based off of our destructive behaviors. And that comes back to a practice of mindful awareness. So it all connects with each other on the path. But the point is to understand where we're bound, where the mind is binding itself, which we would call an untamed mind, because then we act from afflictive emotion, which causes us harm and causes others harm. Where when we tame the mind, we see clearly what the nature of mind is. We see clearly what the nature of our afflictive emotions, thoughts, etc. are. And therefore, our conduct can be in line with more compassionate and loving conduct. It can be in line with conduct that actually causes happiness for ourselves and others, that causes benefit. And ultimately, that just sees reality in a more accurate and clear way. So this connects back to the second phrase in the verse, cultivate a wealth of virtue. And essentially, um, when we come out of a dogmatic approach to virtue and non-virtue, we're just looking at cause and effect relationship. We're looking at what's going to reduce suffering and what's going to bring more happiness or more correct seeing of the nature of reality. And so this second part of the quote is connected to the third part. How do we tame the mind? What does a tame mind look like? It has a wealth of virtue, right? So our conduct is in line with our mind. Our mind, our thoughts, our intentions are in line with our conduct. And from personal experience, this is not an easy feat. You know, when I read these quotes sometimes, it can be challenging because I see my flaws. And from that, when we, if we go too much into a negation of ourself or only seeing our flaws, it interrupts a joyful kind of perseverance in the practice. So I think it's healthy to look at these quotes as both an aspiration and also to look at our own practice in life uh, with some clarity and some sobriety, right? So just wherever you're at, taking a healthy stock, but also remembering there's a lot of aspiration here. It's not like we're going to be able to embody the meaning of this verse right away or, or even after some, some time. This takes time to work on. So taming the mind is related to developing a wealth of virtue. And then, of course, reducing our harmful actions is the first step for most of us. Because how are we supposed to cultivate a wealth of virtue if we still are not mitigating the harm we're causing? And so there's a lot of different ways to talk about um, harmful actions of body, speech, and mind in Buddhism. But generally, we use this framework of what's called the 10 non-virtuous actions. And then we try to practice their opposites, which would be the 10 virtuous actions. And so there's, there's three of body here, there's four of speech, and there's three of mind. The three of body are avoiding uh, taking uh, someone's life, uh, taking what's not given, stealing, and then harming others through sexuality. Those would be the three of body. We're trying to avoid or mitigate the harm we're causing through those three. The four of speech um, relate to harmful speech, like hurting someone else with our speech, uh, trying to avoid that. Trying to avoid slandering others with our speech, like behind their back. Uh, trying to avoid gossip, right? And then trying to avoid lying, Uh telling people untruths. So the next three relate to mind, and these would be trying to avoid or mitigate harmful intent 
where we're we're wishing to harm someone uh, via our thoughts. We're hoping they come into some uh, suffering, and this could also include ourselves. So we're trying to avoid uh, falling into and grasping at those kinds of thoughts. Um, the next one related to mind is related to excessive clinging for things that that we don't have. So excessive clinging uh, for other people's possessions or lifestyle or um, yeah, anything we 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 don't have that we see around us or we see others have. And we can see that's a pretty big cause of suffering because when that's happening, we're stuck in our clinging. We're, we're not able to let go and we're wanting something we don't have. So it's a craving that is causing us to just endlessly fall into a loop, like a thirst we can't quench. So the third one of mine would be a wrong view of denying cause and effect. That one's a little deeper, but basically... When we are stuck in a denial of cause and effect, it's hard to have right action. It's hard to grow virtue because we don't know how to be aligned with reality as it is. And so having a healthy relationship to cause and effect is important. That would be the, the virtue side. So this is one way to talk about this first part of the quote, commit not a single unwholesome action. And this is a practice of mindfulness, more or less. It's not a set of rules or dogmas. Actually, you know, I'm just giving an introduction here, but we should try to study these, these 10 non-virtuous actions and their counterparts, right? The 10 virtuous actions more and understand them. Because for me, I, I tend to notice, I find more freedom, curiosity, and flexibility through learning rather than just taking something dogmatically. And like I was saying, ultimately, Buddhist ethics, so this, the, you know, avoiding the 10 non-virtues would be a form of Buddhist ethics. Buddhist ethics are taken up as a mindfulness practice. They're not there as a dogma. They're there as a way to refine the mind. They're there as a way to understand where our conduct can provide more happiness for ourselves and others. Um, they're not a, it, it's not a moralistic approach. It's much more a way to cultivate an open, compassionate, uh, loving mind, right? And again, when we're cultivating a more open, compassionate, and loving mind, we're moving towards virtue. And when we're moving more towards that virtue of an open, compassionate, loving mind, we're going to start to tame the mind, meaning the afflictive emotions that take us over and cause us a lot of pain, the way we get stuck in our in our fixed beliefs and ideas, that will start to open. And as we go further and further with that, we can open that eventually fully into being an awakened being, you know, being a Buddha. So for me, this really sums up what being a Dharma person means. Uh, most of us, you know, we start our practice at the beginning of the quote, so there is still a linear process. But when understanding it, I, I do find it helpful to start at the end to understand why. Like, why do I want to avoid the 10 non-virtuous actions? Um, otherwise, it does run the risk of either becoming a dogmatic practice for us and or I know a lot of people just straight out might reject it because it might remind them of other religious traditions they're running away from. Um, but when we understand cause and effect, when we understand the mind in this way, when we understand that the what we think, what we say, and how we act matters and affects the mind and ultimately affects whether we're free or not, then we start to become a Dharma person. We start to understand the deeper meaning of why 
meditation matters. We start to understand the deeper meaning of, of why Buddhism matters and why the Dharma matters. And then we apply it in a practical way. To me, this is about something practical of how to integrate into our daily life, how to work over time to take stock gently and compassionately of ourselves, not of others, and, and to progress skillfully. So that's about it. Thanks so much for joining me for this episode, unpacking this beautiful quote from the Buddha, as well as some reflections on what it might mean to be a Dharma person versus just having a Dharma practice. I would love to hear from you. If uh, this content is interesting to you, if you're getting something out of it, please leave a comment below if you're watching on YouTube. And if you're listening on Spotify and iTunes, as usual, feel free to reach out to me at scotttusa.com. And just wishing you all the best in your practice and learning of the Dharma. Thanks so much.